Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The mist... <laughs> The mist is over. Give them the boy! Whoa! Mom, Dad!
Someone else is so bashed. You just got it. Come, come on. Whoa. Having spoken, the doomsayer departs. Come on. <laughs> Why don't you get Billy dressed? I'll take him into town with him. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. Well, let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then I guess that job would be on me. Read the good book. It calls for blood. Guys, I hear something. Are those bugs? Not like any I've ever seen. The entire front of this store is plate glass. dimensions they wanted to try and make a window well maybe your window turned out to be a door who she's gonna sacrifice to make it all better we want the boy you try it kill Andy, have you heard about these membership plans we have over at the Next Reel? Membership plans? Tell me more. For just $1 a month, that's practically nothing, you can become a One Reeler member and get access to member channels over on Discord. But I'm already a member on Discord. Yeah, but you don't have access to the special channels. Ooh, so what's on these special member-only channels? You know that Saturday matinee show? Oh, yeah, the one I get every Monday when the hosts talk about news and trailers, play movie-related games, and then they challenge each other with their list of films related somehow to the movie that we reviewed that week? That's the one. Members get access to the Show Talk channel, where they can vote on these lists each week. Wait, wait, wait. You you mean there's a vote? I, I love voting. Mama always said, vote early and vote often. Now, if you bump your membership to the two-reeler tier which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same you'd pay for a fancy coffee drink, you get so much more. Oh, what more is there? Two reelers not only get everything the one reelers get... (laughs) That's a given. ...but they also get access to live streams to watch the shows when they actually record, or any time thereafter. You mean I have to stop doing this in my bathrobe? Two reelers also get to be a part of the pre-show chat with hosts before every film board episode. I like it. I like it. Two Reelers get every show before regular listeners and without ads. Oh, you mean they don't have to sit through this? (laughs) Count me in. But the best benefit of all, 
members get bonus member-only episodes. I love that. It's an exciting time to be alive. What can I say? So how do I sign up? It's easy. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership? Thenextreel.com slash membership. Access to member-only channels in Discord, early access to shows, access to live streams, and member bonus episodes. Sign up today. All right, Andy, uh, we're talking about number three, the last in our King Darabont series, uh, the uh, books or novellas of Stephen King as adapted for movies by Frank Darabont. We are talking about 2007's The Mist, The Mist, Spooky, Spooky Mist. Were you disappointed that there were no gorillas? That joke is way too funny. One, I hadn't thought of it, and so I wasn't disappointed, and now it's all I can think about. Tentacled tentacled gorillas. (laughs) I'm sure that's what's on it. When when he asks, what's on the other side? What's connected to the tentacles? Now it's a gorilla. (laughs) That's a gorilla, right. (laughs) I love that. I want to see that creature on a shirt. A gorilla with big tentacles. (laughs) <laughs> so uh this uh the the novella was originally published in Skeleton Crew. Uh it was uh not I had not read it and I had not seen this movie. And so when there was a mist and there was a mystery in it, I didn't know what it was. And that was really fun. That is fun. What, yeah, it was think? it was it was actually originally in the Dark Forces anthology uh before mm. Skeleton Crew. That was a few years earlier. Um and I had read it but it's been a very long time since I read Skeleton Crew, so I can't speak to my memories of the story. I just remember enjoying, in general, uh, Stephen King's shorts, and so I'm sure I enjoyed it at the time. And revisiting it now, coming all the way back to the film, which I saw in theaters, I was I was excited. It looked really intriguing, and I was just I, I was blown away by how well they did, like an actual horror film. Like everything felt horrific. Like that what the what was going on in the mist was horrifying. The way that people behaved became horrifying. And it builds to an ending that it's a pretty dark ending. And I just loved that they went to such a dark place in this particular film. I, I really enjoy it. And once the Blu-ray came out and DVD um with uh, with Frank Darabont's black and white director intended version of it i immediately snatched that up and now like that's the version i watch i just feel like i i I agree with him he has a little intro at the start of it talking about how he really wanted to have this black and white version because black and white is not you'll never see black and white in the real world as as a thing the only place you can get that is in the movies and it's kind of this it creates this otherworldly sense of a storytelling and so I really enjoy that, especially with this creature feature that he created here that feels like it's kind of throwbacks to the 50s and 60s with these uh, with these horror monsters that feel very Lovecraftian. It just like everything about it just, I don't know, it just works on a really creepy level for me that we hadn't seen yet from Frank Darabont as a director. Certainly in TV, I guess he's gone there now with like The Walking Dead and stuff. And as a writer earlier in his career with the Nightmare on Elm Street three and things like that, but here, it's like this is this is something we hadn't seen him do with Stephen King yet, and it thrilled me. I'm right there with you, and especially on the black and white. I had I watched the color, and uh, because you know I hadn't seen it, and and at that point I didn't know any better. And uh, when I after watching it, hearing that there is a black and white version of it, I immediately found the black and white and watched it again, and it is a 
viscerally better experience. I mean, it's just fantastic. Uh, and, and it makes you think back to, like you talk about the 50s and 60s, what an unintended benefit of like technological limitations at the time. Like, had we been able to jump straight to color, we probably would have and just missed what uh, is capable on these great uh, black and white films. And I just love watching it adapted for modern filmmaking. I think it looks great. Uh, it feels great. Um, one of the things that you had, had told me uh, when I mentioned I had found it was that it, it improves many of the effect sequences, not the least of which is that uh, loading dock scene with the tentacles. Man, does it ever. It really, really does. I felt like in in some cuts uh, that I was like on the Universal Backlot tour of, you know, and Jaws was coming up out of the water. But <laughs> Jaws with some of those tentacle scenes and the black and white, not at all. You're able to really get lost in some of the horror of of the movie. I thought it was exceptional. But at its very best is any time you're dealing with the mist, right? When you're looking through the glass and you see that it's just a white, you know, blanket of white on the other side and faces come out of the mist. When you see Norm getting dragged into the mist, like those contrasts of of loss and grief with the black and high, high, high uh, white is, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Emotionally gripping. I loved it. When they are journeying from the grocery store next door to the pharmacy which isn't that far and they have to kind of cut across the parking lot to get over there the way that they dip in and out of that mist and you just see it's it's like these soft fades of the people you know as they kind of walk into this and they get lost in this in this kind of this fog it's just like it's it creates such fear because yeah it's this thick white air that's all around you and as you're walking through it you disappear real quick and as we see toward the end when the the group of people who finally get out of the the grocery store who are wanting to hop in their car and drive away as we see them trying to get to their car like the groups like people get lost because they're not seeing each other and how terrifying is that as you're trying to all stick together to get to this car so you can all make it out of there and you're separated and you're trying to find where the horn is and stuff, but you know, that you're also running from creatures. It's a really uh, terrifying way to kind of create a horror story. One of the things apparently, and, and I don't, I, I've watched this twice in like 36 hours and I don't remember any direct reference to this in particular, but as I was reading up on it and having not read the book, uh, they, there is a, uh, apparently some of the characters make mention of the great blizzard of 1888. Uh, thanks Wikipedia. Do you know anything about the Great Blizzard of 1888? I, I'm pretty sure those references are from the book. Yeah, me too. That's yeah, what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I just I started reading about, of course, as you do, the Great Blizzard of 1888 uh, from March 11th to 14th, 1888. One of the most severe recorded blizzards in American history, paralyzing the East Coast from Chesapeake Bay to Maine uh, and into the Atlantic provinces of Canada. Snow fell from 10 to 58 inches in parts of New Jersey. <laughs> which is stunning. Uh, but here's the thing. The weather was unseasonably mild just before the blizzard. Heavy rains turned to snow as temperatures dropped rapidly. The storm began in earnest shortly after midnight and continued unabated for a full day and a half. In the 2007 article, the National Weather Service estimated that this nor'easter dumped as much as 50 inches of snow in parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts, while parts of New Jersey and New York had up to 40 inches and Vermont 20 to 30, with Drifts averaging 30 to 40 feet 
my gosh. <laughs> Highest drift recorded at Gravesend, Brooklyn at 52 feet or 16 meters. That is awesome. That is awesome. And I remember going to, to Chautauqua, the, you know, they back when we traveled, and, and they have many main entrance doors to homes are on the second floor with very large awnings. And so that that was because of these kinds of things in, in Western New York, these kinds of storms that would bring such high drifts, you would actually enter and exit your home uh, on the second story. That's just nuts. So that is mentioned in, in the book. And I bring all that up because I can't help but think about it like that the suddenness of the storm and the way the movie opens where our protagonist is painting, you know, I guess it's the gunslinger, right? I mean, it's that's uh, he's painting the, the yeah. movie poster and um, and he is and, and the storm happens like it just happens with urgency and immediacy uh, and they all have to have, head downstairs and. That's just that gave me that they totally captured that sense of this is an emergency storm. You have to, you know, take shelter now. Uh, it's it's just a, a great like feeling, a great way into the movie that captures that that mystery. And uh, uh, it's just wonderful. Well, and what a nice setup, too, right? We have this huge storm. I mean, obviously, it's a devastating storm for the community. A tree there, you know, the tree that his grandfather had planted falls and goes right through his wall and destroys his his art room where he is working on that movie poster. And his neighbor's, uh, you know, tree falls on his boathouse. His neighbor's tree, all another tree also crushes his car. It's, I mean, it's a devastating storm. And you can see that. And I love the setup for that because we see how devastating this storm is to the people. They're all going into town to try getting supplies because there's no power in the town. And then we find out there's also this military base up um, on the mountain across the lake uh, where they're working on the Arrowhead project. And as as things unfold, it we find out they've lost power too. And guess what? They happened to be exploring portals into other dimensions. <laughs> Probably not a good time to lose power because, of course, now we have all these creatures wandering through the mist. And I just love the way that that we start getting that information over the course of this film and kind of these little bits and pieces are given to us and we start realizing what's happening. I mean, it, it's a great setup for a story. And I think Stephen King found a great way to tell the story, but I think one of the biggest strengths is the characters. And that's what I love so much about Stephen King's characters is he finds ways to create such despicable characters that you have, you know, that you really don't like and that really kind of, find ways to come to power over the course of their stories. And I, I really enjoy that. And we certainly see that. I mean, we we already have that right out of the gate with the relationship between our our protagonist here, uh, David Drayton, played by Thomas Jane, with his neighbor, Andre Brower, who's playing Brent. Uh, they already have a very antagonistic relationship that is nice to see. But once we get to the grocery store and we meet uh, Miss Mrs. Carmody, the crazy a religious fanatic um that's when things really pick up because she seems like a nut at the beginning but as we as we see things grow and change i mean it totally turns into lord of the flies i think that's such an incredible way to explore this uh this situation yeah stephen king i think works in some really sometimes strikingly obvious character like tropes you know like there's there's always the the blue collar worker who doesn't trust the liberal elite right educated person and we have that in sadler's character uh 
and we have the uh, we have, have the religious fanatic. We have the um, you know we 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 do have the bright young teacher with a gun in her purse. Um, like there, there's just there there are a lot of these like tropes that are at work. But Stephen King in Maine, it it feels okay to me. Like there's nothing in here that I think normally would be exhausting to watch. Uh, you know, I would just feel like it's it's just a retread of just more, you know, uh, of the of the kinds of tropes that we see and it used clumsily in other movies. I think I think King's characters actually work in his hands. They actually work for me, and I I don't have any issues with with some of the more strident stereotypes, the religious fanatic, the fact that she becomes the authoritarian despot, uh, and and it has to be put down because she has gone so far is uh it, it, i think a brilliant brilliant use of of that trope um and the fact that uh david drayton is not an unlikable guy like i i feel like that's one of the most central sort of conflicts that i am watching here is why the hell does nobody like him right like there's no reason that uh that um brent uh, the rich black attorney from New York City should not like Drayton, right? We we don't really know the details of the of apparently the, Brent had sued Drayton um, the year prior. We don't know a lot of those details, but it just feels absurd that they don't get along as neighbors. And um, and so I, I think that mystery and why people don't like David uh, is is a really interesting one for me, and it makes the it makes all of the like the the opposite corners kind of character fights um more fun to watch uh, well what's interesting is i think with brent's character that he is like right out of the gate we get a sense that he's an angry bitter person yes. right like as as david rounds the corner to go talk to him about the tree brent is trying to get his chainsaw started and he's just cussing up a storm he, he's he such can't a turn on right he's such an angry person and so we see that and that's established and he doesn't trust people and part of that just comes from his lawyer attitude and i think that that's that we really see that when uh david and uh toby jones's character ollie along with uh you know the you know the mechanics yeah. are trying to say you know a tentacle just came <laughs> under the the door in the loading dock and took norm you know he's you know brent his reaction i think i mean it really irks me that they take so long to say come to the back and look at this tentacle on the floor like why don't they just do that right away but I love that the, the I, regardless that aside, I love the way Brent's reaction is like, you guys, I'm not an idiot. You're just I know you all are trying to, you know, yeah. this whole playing this joke on the guy from out of town. Like, I think that's a really interesting angle to take. And even we get some of that with David and and William Sadler's character as they're talking. He's just like, you know, you're you're a big highfalutin guy. And because David is a local, but he is a movie poster designer working with Hollywood, New York, and all this stuff. And so these local mechanics still look at him uh, like, you know, he's looking down on them, and so they're judging him. And so, I, yeah, I love these character dynamics that well, we're getting. Well, I, I, to, to Andre Brower's portrayal here, which I think is just perfect, right? You, I mean, you bring up exactly the 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 scene I was talking about in the grocery store where he's like, Don't, you can't play a joke on me. But the, because, like, for, for me, the way he is written is a guy who has overcome 
everything. He's overcome uh, probably wealth disparities and education disparities, and he's fought tooth and nail to get everything that he has. He is a uh, now a wealthy black man who is is used to uh, that sort of inner culture of mistrust. And um, so he has no reason to believe that anybody is out for his best interests, right? He has no reason to believe that they're out looking to to be friends with him. And he feels like he's betrayed because that first exchange that we get in the opening five minutes of the movie, he actually started to let himself feel a bit of an affinity toward, toward his neighbor. And so that he holds on so tightly to this idea that he can't trust the, you know, all the, the white hicks, as he calls them, to, you know, be you know, straight with him about what is really going on. It just can't, it, it can't even enter his belief system, whether or not he, he would have gone to the, to the Lording Dock or not. But this is another thing I really celebrate with this, the whole story and the way it's played out in the movie. It would have been so easy, so easy not to have people go to the loading dock, right? That could have been, and, and I absolutely expected that to be the primary source of conflict in the story that he had seen, David had seen something and was unable to prove it to anybody in the town because, uh, you know, he he couldn't, nobody would go back to the loading dock or he couldn't get people back to the loading dock or, God forbid, the tentacle that he cut had turned to liquid goo before anybody had seen it. Like, that was the other thing. Oh, everybody come back to the loading dock and then the tentacle's not there. Like, at every turn, I was pleasantly surprised because they let it happen in a way that felt much more natural to me. Like, yes, we're going to have people come to the loading dock and see the evidence of what is really going on here. Um, and and I was I was just so I was over the moon at at those choices because it it felt much more human. Yeah, and you bring that up. I I, I do appreciate that we do get to bring Bud, who's the the manager of the grocery store. Like he comes back and he sees it. I'm like, oh good, somebody somebody's here. Yeah. in time to see that there is a real thing here. It's not just a rubber snake. And then it dissolves and disappears. And I was like, okay, good. I'm glad we got to see that. Like, cause he, he seems like at this point for the people who are in the grocery store, since he's the manager, I suppose he seems like a little bit more of an authoritarian. Like people can sure. trust him, right? Even authority though authority is well, authoritarian. Yeah. yeah maybe not, but authority. Not, not quite, <laughs> yeah. Authority. Right. Yeah. Um, but of course, Brent still doesn't trust him. Brent still wants to get some people and they all, they all leave. And, and that's kind of, uh, that's the way that this plays is, is, you know, this idea of trust and this idea of, of belief systems and, and power structures and everything. And I, I find it really interesting the way that we start exploring that as, as they start trying to build some semblance of a system of, a you know, creating a society here inside this store. You know, getting stuff cleaned up after the big earthquake and and making sure people uh, who are hurt are taken care of and all of that while Mrs. Carmody starts kind of, you know, spouting her stuff while Brent is, is you know, raising his own group so that they can go out into the into the mist. And while they're just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And this is all before we really start getting more of the monsters. Right. Which isn't until that night when all of a sudden those giant mosquito creatures appear and and so that's like a full 12 hours that like we're in this antitrust zone yeah right and and i think we need to be there obviously to make the the fight of the uh, against the monsters you know that much more compelling but just as an aside did i miss what happened to brent like they left 
the guy, the big tall guy with the uh, longhorn mustache put the rope around his waist and got so, just roped in half. That was horrifying. <laughs> but did we ever see Brent again? Was, he's just gone, right? My Weirdly, my brain, uh, like I had a Mandela effect that he was also on the truck at the end yeah. um, with Melissa McBride's character, but he's not. We never see him again. And actually, they make the assumption, which is probably an accurate assumption, that Brent and his group got taken also by whatever creature took the guy who ran out. The top half. Cause I, yeah, because I, I think yeah. they say at some point they're like, you know, whatever happened to Brent, you know, because yeah. they didn't make it more than or they might have made it about 300 feet out of the parking lot but that's about as far as they probably got but what lovely agony that we did see melissa mcbride on the on the truck at the end in terms of people who leave the store that that was a shiv to the gut it's it's tough and it's it's one of those moments where in the book that was actually a change for the movie that we actually get to see her and and really <laughs> i love the story about melissa mcbride here because she was a local uh, actor from either texas or louisiana who came to be an extra here and and frank darabont was kind of bringing some of the extras who could act a little better into some of these small parts the, the bit parts and he was really impressed with her and just like i you know i really like her look i like the emotion that she carries as an actress here she's just this local actress but she's fantastic and that's what got her the job on the walking dead yeah. how awesome is that like i love that journey that she ends up taking here and she's so incredibly good in the walking dead or she yeah oh she's just fantastic she, a great run yeah, but she her moment at the end was only there because he really found her to be such an impressive actress. And so he changed that in the script to show that she was actually alive. And I, I part of me is like, oh, that just feels, feels so mean <laughs> to have her survive all of this uh, after seeing everything that David has to go through, you know, and it's like, oh. I guess that's it's good. I'm, I'm thrilled that she survives. At the same time, it just I can't help but find it hurts a little bit, too. Did you struggle at all ever? And I, it's going to be hard for you to, I, I'm sure, to put yourself back there. But did you struggle at all with what the mist was hiding when you first read the story, watched the movie? Was it always was it OK that it was monsters? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a Stephen King story. I guess I didn't it didn't uh, bother me too much that it was that it was something like this, um, as opposed to like, you mean a different creature or just something maybe a little bit more um, emotionally complex, uh, like the ghosts, the ghosts of pirates, like in the yes, fog. Ghosts of pir- <laughs> I was hoping for ghosts of pirates. No, but, you know, as your armchair kind of armchair rewriting the, the movie, I and I should say, uh, qualified i i i really enjoyed the movie and i enjoyed the entire experience and now that i've watched it twice i enjoy it more uh, the more i watch it like i'm i'm used to it now i'm adjusted to it. but my first watch i i thought i wonder if it's too easy that it's monsters in in the mist i i i expected it to be some sort of uh something that played with the nature of humanity when you go into the mist when you when the mist goes into you, you become something different. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so I was attuned already to making it more of a psychological horror. And I didn't get that. I got a very literal monster movie uh, out of this thing. What they did with the monsters, credit to, you know, Darabont, uh, obviously off of King's material, but, uh, you know, Greg Nicotero and, and the creature design team, I think, did a phenomenal job with these creatures. They are great and varied and crazy and who like 
how does a universe exist where these things haven't just annihilated one another? Um, it is, it's just a bananas kind of, uh, unit world building that they've done, but I had a great time with them. I just wondered if it was, if it was the easy out. That's interesting. I guess, um, I always knew it was going to be monsters because I saw the trailer, uh, before I saw the film. And obviously I had read the book, so it, it didn't come as a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, I guess I've never really raised that, that, that question in my own head. I've always been okay with it, I guess, especially because as we find out with the whole thing with the Arrowhead Project and the portal from another dimension, it all just ended up seeming okay. And it never, it never questioned me because I, I mean, you're kind of taking it into more of a, um, annihilation type of zone where something, you know, you go into this space and there's clearly things that are changing and happening in your own heads. And, you know, I, I think that that's something that's very interesting in that particular story well and maybe that's maybe that's what is has it been infused into me which was another incredible experience right yeah that, sure yeah i can yeah i can see that i i i you don't know i guess for my part i don't think i end up having a problem with it and maybe it's because in some way you know there are monsters in the mist but it's also the monsters that the people become because they're trapped in the mist and so maybe on that end i'm okay with it because i feel like we we are seeing the people turn into monsters in some capacity right and and we can't forget from the perspective of the monsters we are the monsters in the mist right all we do is hide in this thing and and you know the the humans just keep killing our kind it's just horrifying <laughs> if you're one of these monsters you don't want to go into that store you you have to because you have to eat you're terrified you don't know what a store is you're from this you're from lovecraftia this portal, this other dimension, suddenly you wake up and you're in this place and all you can do is like staying and eat. Oh, I am legend of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the that's real the sequel. Monsters. This is the, the flags of our father's uh, Iwo Jima pair. I want to see, I want to see the second movie. <laughs> the acid spiders. <laughs> We're yeah, just trying to get some food. Up. Yeah. These things keep coming along and stabbing us in the face. Yeah. And it's going to be voiced by Chris Pratt and it's going to be essentially the Lego movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know why Legos never uh, jumped on the bandwagon and uh, started making Andy. toys or, or uh, happy meals with the little, uh, these little creatures. <laughs> the, the next real product spinoff for 2021. Is character character dolls from the mist for Funko Pops. food? Funko food. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk before we talk about the end. Can we talk about the spiders? Uh, more of the spiders. Okay. Yes. Let's it's talk a, more. It's of a the major. Spiders. It's a major sequence. Uh, going going to the pharmacy. It's a major sequence, and this is the one place where I I struggled visually, like to keep up with where our characters were in time and space and i think the just the darkness of it uh the way the the that once they discover the webs it becomes just chaos um and i found it difficult to to track where i was as an audience member in this building because we never see the building in the light right we never get a sense of 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 where they're going what they're doing and and so i struggled with it that said the spiders make up for it because the spiders are terrible and they're amazing to watch in action. And I think they, they have creepy. one of the grossest mouths. I think it's like they started with a human mouth and put more fangs on it. Because at one point, he flips a spider over the camera and you see it with its open mouth. And I think it actually has an uvula in there. It's terrible. 
Yeah, they're they're pretty creepy. And it's like what the fourth creature we see or something like that. Yes. So we've seen the tentacle creature, we've seen the giant mosquito things, we've seen the weird pterodactyl the, birds. Yeah, the pterodactyl birds. And then it's the spiders and they they keep upping in kind of this horrific look and of course spiders are um very creepy. Actually, you know it's interesting that you say that because I think when and until we found out and this is going back to your earlier point, until we really found out what was happening uh with the Arrowhead project and all of that, Part of me was thinking that I wonder if it, if the military has been doing experiments on on insects Actual or something. Spiders. Because it seems like, I mean, other than the tentacles, but everything else seems like kind of insectoid in some way, right? And so I was thinking, I wonder if they've been doing experiments there. Um, so just kind of going back to your last point. But yes, the, 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 the spiders have such a creepy design. I don't know if it bothered me so much the... Uh, my sense of space in the pharmacy. Um, I mean, obviously, it's kind of a long store. They have to go through the store to get to the back where the pharmacy is. They kind of mm-hmm. climb through the little window to get in there to get the drugs and everything and then make their way back out. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it bothered me too much, but but I do think they created a truly terrifying creature in those spiders, especially they're shooting those those like acid web strings that they use to kind of catch their prey i mean it's it's yeah. kind of terrifying especially when they shoot the guy in the face and his oh. you know, like his whole body starts dissolving and then well, he's and covered his leg. he's he's swarmed by those little babies yeah and the one jumps Yeesh. on and goes for his neck that's Ugh, rough yeah. um the 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 gr- one of the great effects in here is when uh his leg is like lassoed by yeah. the the web and it just like unsheathes his pants and skin yeah it's uh, gruesome it's really gruesome there are some really oh and of course we have again talk about a spider horror trope um we have egg sacs erupting on a human character yeah. that is yeah. rough there are a lot of spiders and it is delivered i think perfectly the way you have the first one coming out of the cheek or the neck and then he falls and his body essentially explodes it is now it, it has been completely husked right it's it is a husk human husk that is filled with just baby spiders oh babies so cute so many babies this was it was a it was a terrifically believable effect like it was it was just great the combination of practical and digital was just wonderful yeah it's incredibly effective that works well I, i you know Going back to like the effects work and everything and talking about these things, I also just have to point out the fact that we do lose one of our um, our store clerks in a truly horrifying way. Also, this is Alexa Davalos, who's playing Sally. She is uh, attacked by one of these mosquito creatures that stings her in her neck. And then it swells slowly over the course of a couple of minutes until she's she dies horrifying and just mm-hmm. going to the like you're talking about the effects work with all of the the baby spiders bursting out of the guy's skin i also think there's something really horrifying about getting a sting whether it's a bee or a scorpion or a mosquito or whatever it is and having it just continue swelling to a point that you you die from it i mean it's just it's ugh, gruesome when you see yeah. her uh you know when she's dead it's awful oh, where's that EpiPen, man where's that lovecraftian <laughs> yeah. EpiPen? Um, okay, the the big change in this movie from the book adaptation is at the end of the book, my understanding is that 
everybody is they're, they're trying to make their way to the car everybody's killed by monsters except for david and his son and they are able to get in the car and they drive off into the mist set looking for hope in another town is that basically how you remember it am i catching that ollie and amanda are killed yes uh, ollie killed. and amanda are killed outside by uh the creatures mm-hmm. and so david and billy um hit the road and tried to get um actually i can't remember now amanda might have been with them but anyway it's a very small group and it's essentially the same like they go to try they try to get david's house everything's blocked they can't get there and then they turn on the radio and this was a complaint about the movie it's like why don't they turn on why didn't they just turn on the radio to see if there are any messages out there like from the military saying hey we're coming for you or anything um but they hear hartford connecticut and then they hit the road driving hoping that they will eventually find a way to get out of the mist that's how the book ends it's 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 a bleak ending that just kind of leaves them with a question of is there going to be an end to this or not that was it on the radio through the interference david hears of hartford and he drives on in a hope of escape from the mist hartford connecticut i assume i assume so yeah in the book or in the movie Andy, my God, he has the gun from Amanda's (laughs) purse, and he has four bullets. Yes. In the car are Ollie, Amanda, himself. No, not Ollie. Not Ollie. Ollie's Ollie's out there. Who's uh, Ollie died. Ollie died. It's Dan. Dan. Dan and Irene, Amanda, David, and his son, Billy. Five people, four bullets, and they drive until they run out of gas, and they are in the mist, and they come to a suicide pact, and he is the one to carry it out. This is David I'm talking about here. And so he has the gun, and he's looking at Amanda and his son, and we're in the car, and you know what's happening. And then we cut to external shot of the car in the mist, flash of light, uh, of, of muzzle flash in the car four times, boom, 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 cut back into the car. He is distraught. He gets out of the car, and in an incredibly powerful portrayal of grief and rage he screams come and get me come and get me come and get me and <laughs> the mist the mist clears the military's here it's all over everything's fine don't worry yeah. go back to your homes everything's fine <laughs> yeah he just he just killed them all andy he killed yeah. them all I couldn't believe it i couldn't believe it for two primary reasons first I couldn't believe how much I loved it. I loved this choice. And (laughs) two, I couldn't believe this wasn't the King original ending. This felt like a Stephen King ending to me. More Stephen King than the original ending in the book. I could not believe it. It's a very dark ending. And honestly, it ties, I, I personally, I think it ties in incredibly well with kind of this biblical setup that he had created in the story with Mrs. Carmody and kind of this biblical wrath of God darkness that she had. Because what we end up getting is this story of Job, right? Is this it's character who's, yeah, who's put upon by God to prove his faith, basically. And in the end, he, he sacrifices people and, you know, God essentially kind of says, okay, it's an interesting way to kind of look at the story. And and the question that I think is really interesting is, 
if there wasn't a sacrifice, would the mist have cleared? Oh, that's a noodle baker, isn't it? Wow. It's, and that's that's something that I, I think is really interesting. Like, is, is it only clearing because of the sacrifice or is it is it would it have cleared anyway? Well, Andy, that's that's the book, right? The mist. As far as we know, at the end of the mist, there is no sacrifice. He's in the car with his son. They get away, but the mist is still there. Ugh. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's so dark, but I, I also love the way that it leaves you because it puts this character in this horrific place where he has to make this decision and he goes through with it and he is essentially saved in the worst of possible ways. I mean, it's just, it's a horrifying way to end the story, but it's the most horrific ending. And I think that it's, it stays dark and it doesn't allow for a, happy ending. And I, for, for me, this is the way to end it. And this is what I think a lot of horror films don't do, is they don't take it to that place where it gives you an ending that allows for the horror to to just be there, right? And I think we're seeing, you, you see it once in a while, and I, we certainly see it in films uh, recently like Hereditary and Midsommar and uh, what was the other one I was just thinking of? You know, the, oh, the witch. There are films that that have these dark endings where it's left in this place of darkness, and I I don't know. It it excites me when filmmakers aren't afraid to take the the darker way through the end of the story. Absolutely. Now I I am gratified that King uh, was amenable to this change. As far as I know, he liked it. Yeah, I believe he did. Which is. Uh, it's just great. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. It's great. And, and I think in terms of our series, the, the King Darabont series, I think that choice in and of itself highlights why this is such a perfect pairing. Uh, because this Frank Darabont is a guy who gets it and he has demonstrated just the level to which he gets it through the, the last two movies. And this movie, I think it, in, in terms of his ability to adapt uh, you know, the breadth of what Stephen King has to offer. Uh, I think this is a real pinnacle. Well, and it's I think it's telling that, especially knowing Frank Darabont's early filmmaking work, where it was more horror focused, this was actually the first story that he wanted to do as his directorial debut. He ended up changing things around, and obviously um, it wasn't. And I, I think we're all grateful the fact that Shawshank ended up coming first. But I, I think that it speaks to his horror roots and where he really came from as a filmmaker. And obviously what he still is really passionate about, you see in like The Walking Dead and stuff. And I, I love that he uh, just he thrives in this. And and from all the thoughts and reviews I've read about the film, it's like people really saw that this is a person who gets it, who understands what Stephen King is doing with his horror and and found a way to adapt it in a way that made it work really well and probably better than the original story did. And it's dark and it's it's horrifying, um, but it works. Anybody, uh, as we run through the cast, I think speaking of cast, I think we absolutely just need to just bring up the fact again that Frank Darabont is one of those directors who really starts like building his team. And uh, you can really see that going all the way back to the woman in the room. And we haven't talked about Brian Libby at all. He plays the biker who runs out and gets uh uh, eaten. Uh, the top half gets eaten. But Brian Libby has been in every project so far. Um, he was in The Woman in the Room, the very first um, Dollar Baby short that he made. He was the the son in that particular film. In Shawshank Redemption, he pops up as uh, one of the other prisoners that they are hanging out with. In um, The Green Mile, he's the sheriff. 
And in the Majestic, he's a studio guard. And now he's the biker in the mist. And I don't believe, uh, did he go on to do, um, I don't think he ended up following him over to do anything else. Um, I, I'm not sure what's happened with Brian Libby since, you know, I, he seems to have kind of dropped off the radar. So, um, this was his last film. So, uh, hopefully he's still around. I don't know. Um, but anyway, like right from the gate, like he's using people that you will consistently see William Sadler is we've seen him a number of times over the course of this series. Jeffrey DeMunn, we've seen also in every one of these films so far and goes on to the walking dead. Same thing. You know, this is the first time he works with Melissa McBride and brings her onto the walking dead. Lori Holden, he worked with her uh, right before this on the majestic and then here and then the walking dead. Like he's consistently like latching onto these performers and saying, you're great. Let's keep working together. And I love that we keep seeing that. Thomas Jane for me is the protagonist is uh, our protagonist. David Drayton is fantastic. And I had found him in The Expanse, not knowing that I had seen him before that. Uh, really love him in The Expanse. And he's he wasn't in or hasn't been in the, the entire run. He's now uh, he's transformed. He's not really. It, it's a big thing and uh, <laughs> uh it's hard to explain what he what he is anymore in the series uh but uh, he was a real treat in the first season and so it was a thrill to see him in this movie and then to see that he was also one of the veggie police the vegan police in scott pilgrim versus the world uh it was just an enormous treat i had to immediately go back and watch that it's true he is that guy it happens fast but he's there and he has lines. Uh, so that, that was really fun to see him. He was a real high point in this movie. He's a, a super grounded performance. And every all the other craziness that goes on around him, he's he's a nice anchor. I think he's a he's a great, strong performer, uh, especially uh, as a foil for both Andre Brower, who is an exceptional talent in his own right. And Marsha Gay Harden, the same, playing the opposite ends of the the political sort of social spectrum. Uh, I, I think they make a, a terrific trio. We talked about him way back in Boogie Nights because he played Todd, um, the yep. guy who Mark Mark Wahlberg kind of connects with late in the game. And I thought he was great there. He has appeared in a number of other Stephen King properties like uh, Dreamcatcher. He was in that. And then I think he did. I want to say he did one other one, but I'm blanking on what that would be at this point. Oh, it was 1922. It was the Netflix movie. That was uh, sure. Uh, pretty good and of course the punisher uh, he was <laughs> he was unfortunately in the in the uh, version of the punisher with john travolta which you know it has its moments but on the whole it's not that great <laughs> okay uh but he's one of those guys who I, I i feel like i've seen him off and on throughout uh you know his career as a as kind of one of those those guys but really i think that he really is given a chance to kind of come into his own here and i just i don't know i i love what he's doing with this character i i have a great time a lot of people you look around at the reviews and a lot of kind of people's thoughts on this film his end performance here a lot of people have issues with how how big and over the top it is. And a lot of people say it really pulls them out of the film because his acting is almost seem, seems a little too over the top and, and goofy. I don't feel that I watch this ending and I'm like, this is a guy who just killed his own son and these other people that he was with. 
and is just horrified and devastated. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I don't have any issues with that. But I, I know that there are issues that some people have with that. 100%. I'm with you. I, I, and, and it's be, become the subject of memes. You sent me one. And <laughs> I laughed until I realized, hey, he shot his son. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it, Internet. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's a terrible meme. Uh, a couple of other highlights. So on Francis Sternhagen is always a delight uh, as the rancorous uh, elderly teacher. I want her to just walk around with me at all times, be to throw a can of peas at people who yep. <laughs> just irritate me. She's she was aces. great. Yeah, she was great. I, I can't remember how much we talked about Marsha Gay Harden specifically, but she's one of those actresses who I always feel like I don't give enough credit to. And I know she won an Oscar and like she's she's obviously done some great performances. But she's one of those people who kind of disappears into her role so often that I feel like I kind of forget that she's out there. And when I see her in something like this, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, she's such a great actress. Why don't I see her more? And it's just it, she I do. I see her all the time. It's just she's she is totally in, in the in all sense of the word, an actual actress, not a movie star where she really just disappears into the film. Yeah, I think so, too. She's she is a character actor, uh, uh, one of the greats. And man, did I not like her in this movie? Hats off to her for nailing it. <laughs> she is atrocious. Yeah. By the time you get to that end where she's like, you know, sacrifice the boy or whatever she says, it's just yeah. like, holy cow, she has gone down the crazy train. Truly. It is it is tough. Um the the other a fun um addition to this thing, one of the soldiers is Sam Witwer. You know much of Sam Witwer? I know he is um what is the thing that I know him from? I don't know what I know him from, but he was in something. Yes, he is in a lot of things. So uh, I found him originally um, in Smallville. Uh, he played, I, I can't remember. It was He was one of the human characters that came from Krypton. I think he became like Darkseid at the end. They were doing this whole Darkseid thing and he he had things erupting out of his face he was he was great and then he went on he's he's been in uh the walking dead he's done a lot of voice stuff in and around star wars he did the force unleashed uh force unleashed 2 um and then he was all over um uh he was in being human which was terrific uh a terrific uh series ran for a couple of years uh mr hyde in once upon a time he was on that for a bunch uh and then he was Maul, the voice of Maul in uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. Well, and Clone Wars, Rebels. I mean, he is he is Maul now. He is he's he is one. Maul yeah. now, and uh, and he's uh, Agent Liberty and Ben Lockwood and Brainiac Five in Supergirl. So if you're watching the Arrowverse shows, you'll see him a little bit, and of course he is in Clone Wars and uh, the other Star Wars stuff. He's great. I realized it was Battlestar Galactica. That's yeah. where I first. Uh, really remembered him from that's that was my first connection with him yes absolutely um and i mean he yeah he was he was great and that he was in i think pretty much a season right he was in the was it the first season i think i can't remember which season but yeah he was in like it was like a over the course of a season he was in quite a number of them um i want one more actor i forgot to point out juan gabriel pareja Mm -hmm. He is one of the other military guys, and he is uh, also one of the people that would latch on and become a regular with, uh, um, with Darabont, and he'd pop up in The Walking Dead also as Morales. 
Great cast. Camera is Ron Schmidt is on his DP. What I think uh, was interesting about this is Darabont really wanted to kind of get a grittier look with the way that the film looked. Um, kind of this almost documentary-ish feel, a little more fluid and, and kind of like these cameras following people around. And so he actually got in touch with the team over at The Shield, which, you know, is one of my uh, favorite TV shows and uh, ended up talking to, uh, to Ron Schmidt, who had worked on that show for, uh, you know, think the entire run of it uh, you know, yeah 79 episodes yeah so on. so he um he wanted darabont wanted that feel that raw feel to the film and so that's why he brought ron over um because he had he had, and he had actually met him when he directed one of the episodes over there and wanted that style and so uh i think that's interesting uh, the way that kind of he brought that over and, and found found the look here which you know it's funny that he says that because i don't know how much i see the ragged the shield documentary approach here but I, I, I don't know. I guess I would say I feel like it is a little more intense than what we were getting in Shawshank or Green Mile or even The Majestic. I think so. He is also DP on a trio. One of my favorite uh, Stargate spinoffs was Stargate Universe that sadly, sadly canceled after uh, far too soon. He did the uh, three-part episode Air, which was amazing television amazing amazing television so from the mist to the shield you know lead to the 25 episodes he did for the walking dead like you really feel his you can start to feel his stamp on on just the way he uses camera in character and i think it's it's um it's really great work it was fun to see to see sort of where he came from yeah absolutely and, you know, I, and I don't, I, I didn't find anything. That's one thing I was looking for. I was curious if there were some conversations that Ron had with Frank when they were starting this about, about the black and white version and, and, and the way that, cause you know, I mean, we talked about this on the film board when we talked about Mank and how David Fincher shot it in black and white, really wanted to make everything look perfect in black and white. Obviously, there's a difference in these films that are shot in color and then, you know, they they go through the di process and turn it black and white like what was the process that they went through in in those conversations to allow for that i didn't find anything but i would love to kind of get a little a little backstory on that yeah truly we've talked about the effects uh greg nicotero is just just one more name drop for him because he went on to play such a central role in the walking dead and i i could not get over some of the some of the sort of direct visual lineage from The Walking Dead to to this movie. I mean, it's just, uh, it was really fun to see. It was like old home week um, to see some of that effects work that has, um, that has, I think, really defined a generation of horror uh, in the work of this particular team. Uh, it was really fun. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he was also on as the second unit director, which makes sense because filming all those scenes that where you need the specific shots designed around these things. And, you know, he had designed the puppets and everything so the actors could see what they were going to be acting against because this was one of those things where all these actors are just acting against the little effect balls, you know, that they have on, on sticks that they're moving around. And that's hard. That's really hard to get yourself into that place where you're imagining that. So I, at least he's creating the physical puppets for them to look at or to get a sense of. So I, I, I like that. Um, and I think he does great work. So Mark Isham behind the music, Mark Isham, um, 
absolutely is uh, you know a great composer, but I, I think also we have to bring up the fact that we have Dead Can Dance here with their song "The Host of Seraphim," yeah. which which plays uh, a number of times in the film, uh, mainly at the end. And of course, you have Lisa Gerard with her kind of that that famous chanting and kind of I guess it's classified as wailing music. It's just yeah. kind of like that the way that she sings it, which you hear in. Um, the one that always comes to mind is Gladiator. But there's something very... I, I love that Darabont says that the song plays as a, quote, requiem mass for the human race. Ouch. I think that describes that song and the way that it feels in the film, especially in that last sequence when they're driving through the mist and they see that massive, massive... I don't know. It's like a giant elephant creature thing that's just kind of walking across the freeway and it kind of looks at them and then kind of goes on its merry way before they all have to kill each kill themselves and it's just like i I know that music works and it makes the ending i think it builds to the ending and in a perfect way so i i really enjoy it i do too and the actual constraint they have in not using music for a lot of the film there is particularly in the opening the first act like there is that i couldn't help but be sort of taken by the feeling uh, that that sort of sensory experience when you go out into a dense fog and it feels like the all the, the the entire soundscape is dampened around you. That's what the movie feels like from the very first, you know, scene of the storm in the movie, particularly in the black and white to when the mist rolls in. There is there's no music. There's no there's nothing but natural sound um, or, you know, movie sound. And I thought it was really haunting and effective and lonely. And it it just fit the whole vibe. It definitely does. And I think that there's something really uh, powerful about it, especially because I feel like in my head, the only time we really hear it is when they actually exit the store and go into the mist. Like, I feel like the first time I remember music is when they're they're going through the mist trying to get to the pharmacy. Right, right. It takes a long time. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's very effective. Constraint. Yeah. Um, okay. Interestingly... The movie did well enough where in this, you know, the Weinsteins were behind this. Um, I know it's, it's, I know, I know, but it's one of those things. It's like, what do you say? Um, (laughs) They, they wanted to do a TV series and they, so they put together a a 10 part episode or 10 part series designed on this story and Spike TV picked up the pilot and they ran it for 10 episodes and then it was canceled. Um, I haven't seen this, but now I'm really curious about this. I, I don't know how easy it is to track down these days, but it, they have 10 episodes out there. It is essentially the same story taking place in Maine about this mist that kind of takes over this area. We're just following more people. There's a group of people in a mall, in a church, in a hospital. And what it says is eventually people begin to see apparitions in the mist from their past fears or guilt that help or kill them, depending on how they react. Wow. That sounds like a that very, sounds like exactly what I wanted. Yeah, it totally does. Um, and it sounds like by the time you get to the end of the 10th episode, it sounds like a really dark way to end that uh, season. And it does make me wonder if, <laughs> like, it almost feels like a dark ending and it fits in the dark way that Frank Darabont ended this one. That if they weren't able to continue it, it still has a very dark yeah. ending. That's, so That's amazing. Yeah, really intriguing. I, I want to track that down now. Uh, the Mist is, looks like it is available on Netflix. Excellent. I'll have to check it out. Oh, goodness. I just pressed play, and it opens with an extreme close-up of a spider. See? It's designed for you. 
There, what's interesting is there were actually some games, not based on this so much, but based on the book, on the novella. Uh, Mindscape actually released an interactive fiction game in 1985 based on the novella. And then the, the Half-Life video game series also has creatures from other dimensions. They say that the mist was one of their main influences for the plot. And they actually called the first, or they originally were going to call the first game in the series called Quiver which was a reference to the Arrowhead project. And actually the Silent Hill games were influenced also by this because of that whole mist that you have surrounding everything. So um, very interesting the way that the story has kind of created this influence in these different properties. You know, it's funny. I I now feel like I know where the Half-Life Aperture Science handheld portal device, the portal gun from Half-Life and Portal, I know now where it came from. It came from mist. Because inside of this is all the crazy creature. Of course it does. The circle is now complete. Circle is now complete. Uh, how to do an award season? Uh, you know, it it was a horror film, and it was very specifically horror. Uh, so only in those realms did it get any nominations uh, or wins. It had six wins total, 13 other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, Marsha Gay Harden won for Best Supporting Actress. The film itself lost to, but lost the Best Horror Film to Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, and Frank Darabont lost Best Director to Zack Snyder for 300. Over at something called the Fright Meter Awards, which is interesting, Frank Darabont and Marsha Gay Harden both won their awards. Sam Witwer was actually nominated for Supporting Actor, along with Nathan Gamble, who plays young Billy. Both of them lost to J- Jacob Kogan in Joshua. I haven't seen Joshua, but it makes me think that perhaps there was some you know, splitting of the votes between those two. Mm-hmm. At the Golden Schmoes, it was nominated for Most Underrated Movie of the Year, but lost to Grindhouse. Also lost to Grindhouse for Best Horror Film. And it lost the the most memorable scene in a movie for its final sequence to Eastern Promises for its sauna scene. Well, that, was Rondo, good, that was a good scene. That, that was a good scene. I, yeah. I'm okay with that loss. Yeah. At the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards, it lost Best Movie to Rob Zombie's Halloween. And the World Stunt Awards, it was nominated for Best Fire Stunt by Jason Gray when he gets lit on fire and stumbles around until people put him out. It lost to American Gangster for the scene where the stuntman wearing Nomex and fire gel sits in a chair as Denzel Washington drops a lighter on him. The stuntman is engulfed in flames for 20 seconds before he falls over and is then shot. That sounds like a pretty impressive stunt. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm glad they, 20 I'm seconds. Glad they, I'm glad they, award, uh, they got an award for that. That's 20 a, seconds and fuego. Yeah, a long, a long time. time. That is a long time. Uh, okay. Well, did it did it do anything at the box office? Please tell me we have a positive APPFF. Well, for Darabont's third and final King adaptation, he had a much smaller budget, which probably came because of the horror angle. He had thirteen million, which is his lowest budget so far. That is sixteen point one million in today's dollars. But he did walk into this knowing that the budget would be smaller. The movie opened November 21st, 2007, during the busy Thanksgiving season opposite Beowulf, Enchanted, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, This Christmas, Hitman, August Rush, Love in the Time of Cholera, I'm Not There, and Margot at the Wedding. Like I said, very busy holiday season. This movie opened in 12th place, then it did crack the top 10 for three weeks before completely dropping off the radar by its fifth week. It ended up earning $25.6 million domestically and $31.9 million internationally for a total gross of $71.3 million in today's dollars. 
With a lower budget, it did make its money back, and it certainly found its audience, ending up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $437,000. That makes me happy, Andy. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you didn't cheat it just for me. That's real, right? I, you didn't just make that up. It was real. Right. Yes, it was real. I, You know, it's, it's frustrating. I know we're at the end of our series now, but, you know, at this point in time, Frank Darabont has nothing else on his horizon that he's working on, and I would love to see him doing another Stephen King-related property. You know, I, I think that that pairing of those two together has always worked really well. And, you know, I just don't, I mean, he, I mean, he's done four films since he started. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the guy is working on at this point in time. I, I just know that I'm frustrated that it's, his output is so light. Agreed. Uh, this was yeah. a treat. Shall we take it to the mat? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this fair show. You swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart. It should take you straight to the mist in the flickchart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have the mist or underworld. The mist. The mist for me. The mist or Fargo. Oh, man. <laughs> that is quite the block. It's Fargo. It's Fargo. The mist or interstellar. Interstellar. I'm going to go with the mist. You are? Oh, I'm very surprised and pleased to hear that. Uh, I'm still going to, we still need to play it out, but I'm really happy with that. That's right. All right, here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three, Rock. Oh, paper takes it. Interstellar wins. I'm I'm disappointed that I won. Yeah, you should I don't think I was supposed to win. (laughs) The Mist or 28 Days Later? 28 Days Later. I'll say The Mist. Okay. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Paper. (laughs) The mist takes it on that one. The mist or the prestige? The prestige. Hmm. I'm the mist, I think. I'm going to say the mist. Okay. Here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Paper. Scissors takes it. The prestige, I know. The mist or marathon man? Is it safe? <laughs> um I think it's I think it's Marathon Man. I'll go with Marathon Man. All right. Dustin Hoffman may yeah. have been able to outrun the creatures if he were running through the mist. True. True. Yeah. But I do I there is there's a universe out there in the multiverse, Andy, where Dustin Hoffman is actually in the mist and he's in the grocery store and I'd like to see that movie too. Maybe he is the creature they're all running from. Ugh. Dustin Hoffman came through the portal. That's his story. It's <laughs> Dustin Hoffman as the spider. Yep. The mist or the diving bell and the butterfly? Uh, I'm going to go with the mist. I. Uh, There's just, I mean, diving gonna, I've yeah. seen it now twice. Once and then once for the show. I'm not watching that movie again. It's too much. Yeah, it's, it's great. It is a great film. I'm never watching that movie again. I'll say the mist. The mist or in the mood for love? Oh. I'm going to say in the mood for love. Yeah, it is. Uh, Okay. The mist or hero? I think the mist. Oh, say the mist. A little wishy-washy on that one, but it's only one spot above. In spot 217, 217 out of 508 films on our chart, that puts it at a 57%. Kind of low, if you ask me. Man, I did not have 
the same challenges when ranking it on my own list. <laughs> I did not hit anything that was questionable to me in my picks. How did it do on yours? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it ranked better on my own chart. Landed in spot 780 out of 4630, which is about an 83%. 83%. I beat you, Andy. 216 what? out of 1501. It's an 86%. If I were to go by the algorithm... Over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four and a half star film. Uh, I know it's a I know it's a four with a heart. I don't know if it's that full four and a half. <laughs> I did have some problems with the the whole sort of time and place staging blocking. I don't know. Where'd you go? Yeah, I fluctuate on this one. I feel like I'm at a four star, but I, I really enjoy this film. So I'm, I'm totally OK giving it four stars and just knowing that I still love it. So that's where I'm sitting with All it. Right. I, I'm comfortable with that, too. Four stars and a heart. A big, beating, juicy, love, crafty and heart with tentacles. Uh, <laughs> this was a terrific film. I had a great, 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 great time with it. And uh, I can't wait to... This is one of those that I can't wait to show people who haven't seen it. Yeah, truly. Uh, what a what a fun movie. So, uh, great film. Now, wh- we're done with King Darabon. That's it. That's all we've got for this little trio of films. Where do we go from here? Yeah, it was a very... I mean, you know, again, he hasn't done much. So, that's where we sit with Frank Darabon. We're going to be shifting gears now. Totally different types of stories. We're going to be looking at Lynn Shelton, who tragically uh, died at age 54 in 2020. And uh, he's just you know, very sad from um, acute uh, myeloid leukemia. And... Um, But she had a chance. I mean, she had been acting, directing, doing a number of different things. Uh, We're looking specifically at a series of her films in uh, in her director filmography, which she started in 2006. But we're going to be starting with Hump Day from 2009. We're going to be looking at your sister's sister, Laggies, Outside In, and ending with Sort of Trust, her final film. Mm -mm -mm. I have I this is going to be very, very new to me. Yeah, me too. I, I've the heard series. the name a lot. She's one of those people who really started popping up in kind of the mumblecore crowds and in those different stories. And um, and so I knew of her. I just hadn't seen any of her of her work yet. And so this will be a treat. I'm looking forward to watching all of these films, all of which will be new to me. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth Andrew, as Letterbox always doeth. All right, I, I we went high, so I went low, and mine's really really short, and so I just want to start because I think I think it's respect it, it, it it's uh, respective of the other of some of the other low reviews. Uh, it's from Nevin Morgan, who's in my Letterbox network. Nevin, hello. Pretty thin stuff, says Nevin. A Twilight Zone episode stretched to two hours and still and totally still feels like TV. Also, you don't get to show a parent shooting their child unless you're pretty sure your movie is a masterpiece. This one definitely isn't. Ouch. I know. Ouch. Oh, wow. I see the point. I see the point. I just like the movie better than you did. That's fine. Apparently. Yeah. What do you got? I, I, you know, I didn't bother going high or low. I just found this one, which I really enjoy. It's by Matt Lynch, who gave it three and a half stars and a heart and had this to say with it. Hell with this. I'm going to Whole Foods. I don't give a f- 
how expensive it is. <laughs> oh. oh, that's awesome. Thank you, that Matt. That is fantastic. <laughs> I hate to tell you, Matt, but Mrs. Carmody, she probably is also shopping at Whole Foods. She's at Whole so Foods. And out. ever since Amazon, it, the prices are really, it's, don't worry about it. You, yeah. you, you're going to get eaten by the mist in any store you go to anymore. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>